Hey, it's Andrew. Just quickly before we start this episode, I want to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts, the Secure Ventures Podcast. The host, Kyle McNulty, interviews cybersecurity founders about what they are building. I enjoy it because Kyle focuses on their technology, what it solves, why they build it, where it fits in the market. Also, listeners can understand the why of these startups. In some ways, it's a great compliment to my own podcast, where I focus on the go-to-market side, not on the technology side. He's had some great guests on recently, for example, the CEO of Reality Defender, when they talked about the ins and outs of deep fate detection. Uh, he's had the co-founder and CEO of Ghost Security, and also the co-founder of Radical, Chris Peterson, who was incidentally a founder of Logarithm, where they talk about the role of AI in the SOC. This is not a paid promotion. I just simply enjoy what Kyle is doing with his interviews and get a lot out of them. Check it out. It's the Secure Ventures podcast. Now on with this episode. The most important thing is distribution, not product, according to the CEO of Anjuna, Eyal Yoga. Find out what he means by that and the nuances about how they went about building distribution in this episode. Welcome to the Sales Bluebird podcast, which exists because at B2B startups, it's hard to get consistent traction and scale the sales team. Sales Bluebird provides you tips, tricks, experiences, examples, ideas, and inspiration from people who know a thing or 10 about building great cybersecurity companies. I am your host, Andrew Monahan. Our guest today is Eyal Yogev, CEO and co-founder at Andruna. Welcome to Sales Bluebird. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. We're at RSA, huge chaos and loudness and confusion going on on the expo floor. We're meeting in a place just slightly off-site, and it's cool to hear about the companies that are really making a difference early stage in cybersecurity. However, before we get into the business end of this, I have a list of questions right near ADL, and uh, I'm looking to, to give me a number to 1 of 15, and I'm going to ask you the question and uh, learn a little bit about you yourself. Sure. I'll start with uh, 12. 12 is... What's one great sales or business book that you've read that you'd recommend to people? Oh, wow. I think I really liked, I uh, just read Zero to One by Peter Thiel. I thought that was a very, very good one. It's like a classic, but it's, it's very good. Yeah, it's great for starting up founders, right? All process. I remember reading that a few years back. Yep. Another number team, one in 15. Uh, do uh, two. Two. Do you prefer a suite of the four seasons or a cabin in the woods? Oh, wow. I like both. I guess it depends on you know what the weekend plans are. I guess I'll go with Suite of the Four Seasons. Something nice about that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's hard to say no to. I think what I want to do is a week in the cabin in the woods and then go to the Four Seasons for a couple of days. It's usually, exactly. Get pampered after being in the woods for a little bit. Exactly. That's the perfect one. One more number between one and 15. Six. Six is, what's a favorite summer pastime for you and your family? So... We've been living uh, here in the Bay Area for the last 10 years, but we're originally from uh, from Israel. So usually in the summer, we just go and visit the family back in Israel, which is always super, super nice to see everyone. How long do you go back for when you go? Uh, so it depends. We used to go for like two, three weeks. Last uh, last summer, we went for longer than that because um, the kids had to quarantine because we couldn't back to the kids back then. This summer, we're going to go for four weeks. So I'm originally from Scotland, so I have the same thing. When I go back, it's a lot of family and friends things. And it's tough because it's a long way to go for a short period of time. Exactly. Yeah, but it's always great to see everyone. It is, isn't it? All right, well, let's talk about the business side of this. What can you tell us about where in the journey Anjuna is in terms of your growth and uh, size? So we're in the beginning of the scale phase of the business. 
again, happy to kind of go deeper, but essentially we spend a bunch of time, obviously kind of building the product and finding sort of initial product market fit and understanding our sort of distribution model. Who are we selling to? What's the right way to sell to these people? You know, what companies do we sell to? Who do we sell to within those companies? And what's the right way to engage them and talk to them? Now that we've figured that out, you know, and obviously there's always, you can always kind of improve and do better, but we have sort of a good understanding of, of that. We're now scaling the sales organization. And then the next phase is we're starting, that's sort of on the go-to-market side. On the product engineering side, it's about finding new uh, revenue streams to add on top to the, the initial one that we have. How did you decide internally that you had found enough of a product market fit to then do the scale? It's mostly about repeatability. It's being able to see sort of the same thing working over and over again once you have that. And again, I think product market fit is a journey, right? It's not sort of one point where you have product market fit and that's it. But once we kind of felt we're sort of deep enough or further enough in the journey to start, you know, scaling this and bring, you know, other people who are not the founders, not the initial executive team to go and then we can train them to go and sell this, that's when we realize, okay, we can start scaling. If you were to guess, you may know precisely how many companies did you talk to as part of that learning journey? Oh, that has to be hundreds. Really? Yeah. And any key learnings that you had that you just didn't think about beforehand? Oh, a ton. <laughs> I'd say the big one for us is the, to me, that phase is, one is I think one, I've learned that distribution is more important than anything else in, in a startup. I kind of grew up in product. I came from the product side. And to me, it was about, you know, having great product, having the best product in the market. And I still think we have the best product in the market and that's great. But distribution is just key to be successful. You can have the best product, but if you don't figure out the distribution and you don't build out the right go-to-market motion, you're just not going to be successful in the market. And we've seen the opposite. We've seen companies with mediocre products building an amazing go-to-market motion and being extremely, extremely successful. Again, I'm not going to name names, but we've seen this in the security space quite a lot. Uh, so that was sort of one learning. And then to me, on the sort of figuring that out, to me, it was just basically a lot of experimentation and basically trying and failing and trying and failing and then sort of figuring out, okay, what does work? And then once you do doubling down on that, to me, that was sort of the process that we took. And that would be the process I would take to this over and over again. Yeah. So why don't you explain what Anjuna does, what it's all about? Sure. So we're a company in the confidential computing space. And at a very, very high level, when companies kind of go through their cloud journey, when they kind of move workloads to the cloud, they run into the problem of essentially once you run on somebody else's infrastructure, they have access to everything you do on top of that infrastructure. So you add just a ton of risk, both by the, the cloud vendors having access, the, the government potentially coming in with a subpoena getting access, or just third parties running on that same infrastructure that might you know, do things that will eventually put you at risk. High level, what happened in the space was that the hardware vendors built a solution to completely solve that. And interestingly enough, it actually started with the, and on the cloud side, it started with the cell phones. I don't know if you ever thought what happens if you lose your phone. You have biometric data, your fingerprint or face ID. You know, what happens? You know, can somebody get access to that? And the answer to that is no, because the phones have this confidential computing capability that gives you complete security, even from physical access to the device. Actually, interestingly enough, that's kind of what allowed Apple a few years back to basically say no to the FBI when they asked them to remember that. And that was because of confidential computing. Apple could essentially tell the FBI, we just don't have any access to data on the iPhone because of those capabilities. And what happened was that this moved to the server side and the sort of the hardware vendors, you know, Intel, AMD, ARM, and now NVIDIA have realized that this is where obviously a lot of the sensitive data is. And they've added that capability into their chipset. 
Uh, in 2020, all the cloud vendors essentially adopted these technologies. And the reason they've done so is to be able to do two things. One is turn to their customers and tell them, when you use confidential computing, we don't have any access to your data on top of our platform, which is probably the number one you know, issue companies have about moving sensitive data to the cloud. And also allows them to turn to the government and tell the government, you can subpoena us because we just don't have access to customer data. You want access to our customer data, go directly to the customer. So that's sort of the, the big shift that happened in the market. And where we fit in is every time there was a major hardware shift, you needed a software stack on top of it to make it usable. We've seen that with, you know, uh, Microsoft and the operating system on top of CPUs. Uh, we've seen that with VMware on top of virtualization. Virtualization was a huge shift, uh, but you needed VMware to make it useful. And without VMware, nobody would be using virtualization, right? Or a company like VMware, nobody would be using virtualization to begin with. We do the same for confidential computing. It's another extremely powerful technology built by the hardware vendors that is extremely difficult to use. And exactly like you know what VMware did or Microsoft did for the CPU, we build a software stack on top of it to make it super simple to use and ubiquitous across the different hardware technologies. So what they did on-prem world is to say, here's the functionality, go figure it out, right? And some companies could and most couldn't, right? Then what you're doing cloud just working on-prem as well, saying that we've got a whole way to make yeah, we support the cloud and on-prem. The, the, most of the use cases, I don't think we have any deployments on-prem today or our deployments are in the cloud because this is just a, sort of a, that key use case that we found. Even though I think it's going to expand beyond the cloud and happy to talk more about that. But yeah, this is now part of every CPU that Intel ships and AMD ship. All the clouds have enabled this and every cloud shows a different underlying technology. You know, Microsoft went with Intel, Google went with AMD, Amazon being Amazon built their own hardware solution, you know, called Nitro Enclave to go support this. But the problem the customers are running into is obviously this is an extremely powerful technology that can help them move sensitive workloads to the cloud. But it means rebuilding, rewriting every application to go use this and write extremely low level code, uh, basically either assembly language or C-level language. It's just not something that any organization wants to do. Not to mention, if you use third-party applications like databases or key management solutions, you're not going to go rewrite those to go support this. So basically, there's a huge need for a layer, software layer, kind of like VMware, to just obfuscate all of that and allow you to take any application, any workload, and just run it you know, in a confidential computing environment for complete privacy in the cloud. And the customers out there, what are they using it for? What's the use cases they actually have in place? It's funny because the use cases that we see now starting are around migrating sensitive data to the cloud. So it's usually around, you know, starting with moving a database to the cloud or moving a key management solution to the cloud or moving some machine learning workload where both the algorithm and the data might be sensitive to the public cloud. Uh, we see some use cases around geographical expansion. So American companies that want to expand into China and they might not uh, trust their cloud vendor in China or the Chinese government. We see European companies wanting to expand to the U.S. and because of privacy regulations, they have a lot of challenges around that. And they obviously want to protect user data running outside of Europe. So these are the use cases that we see. But the interesting thing about this is every time a security solution has no performance impact and has been extremely simple to use, it became sort of the default. And we've seen that with the firewall, we've seen that with TLS, that now every website uses. And this is sort of what we see with here as well, with confidential computing. With all of these companies, we start with protecting, let's say, a database but then they come to us and say, but we have this application that we built on top of the database and the data gets there as well. Can we protect that application? And then, you know, there's the next application that talks to the application that's using the database. Can we protect that? And soon we essentially become a part of the infrastructure and we protect all the applications. And where I think confidential computing in general as a space is going is that everything will be running in confidential computing. Because if you have a security solution that's, you know, no performance impact, super simple to use, why not use it to protect all your workloads and all your data? 
So it becomes almost as ubiquitous as, as the hypervisor and VMware world, right? Just we could do something cloud that just is there. Exactly. In that view, would the customer buy that or would the cloud company provide that? So I think what we're seeing now, and this is sort of my sense, so we're not working with both AWS and Azure. They're both partners of ours. But my sense of where this market is going is this is very similar to what we've seen with companies like Snowflake, where the clouds are going to have their own sort of offering, but only for their own cloud. But then there's going to be a company that's going to be a cross-cloud. It's going to be a best of breed to service you know, multi-cloud customers. And the reason it's going to be very difficult for one cloud to provide this is that what this essentially allows you to do is run workloads in multiple clouds, potentially in a hybrid cloud environment, some on-prem, some in the cloud. And essentially everything is running completely protected and the data is protected between the different, the different workloads and applications across all these different environments. This is something that you need sort of a third party that's not one of the clouds providing. And that's exactly part of the value that we bring to the table. Right. So the customer's standpoint, obviously they do care which cloud, but in some ways they don't, right? It's just, it's all taken care of. Exactly. And this sort of sort of obfuscates the cloud, or at least that, that portion of what the cloud does. And yeah, we see more and more company, multi-cloud is now something every company has to think about uh, for obvious reasons. The large companies, you know, one of our advisors is, is Michael Johnson, who was the CISO at Capital One. And Capital One, as everybody knows, kind of went all in on AWS. But he told me they have to think about multi-cloud because every acquisition that they make brings them into another cloud. So you kind of have to. Plus, with financial services specifically, regulations are now starting to mandate them to think about multi-cloud for resiliency. And who inside an organization is the buyer of your software? It's funny because we ended up kind of selling into two types of customers, and each one of them has a different buyer. So one sort of type of customer we sell to is the sort of the G2000s or sort of governments, these types of customers. And they usually have, you know, extremely sensitive workloads or regulated data. And they're all somewhere in their cloud journey. Some of them are very early on. Some of them are further along. And we essentially enable them to either start their cloud journey or move more sensitive data into the cloud. And there we usually sell into either the security team or the infrastructure team. So either the CISO or the, the infrastructure team. The other vertical that we discovered sort of almost by accident was ISVs, software vendors. And there, the use cases is allowing them to tell their customers, we use confidential computing, so we and our employees don't have any access to your data, as you know, to our customers' data running within our platform, uh, which allows them to basically bypass a lot of the sort of the security screen, you know, the security uh, questionnaires that the customers are, are giving them. And there, the buyer is usually more on the, you know, either product side or CTO or VP of engineering side, and not necessarily uh, the CISO. Yeah, that makes kind of sense. And for the ones that on the your first use case, it seems like the main driver would be risk mitigation. But is there an operational efficiency to be gained as well or cost savings? So it's only because the cost savings come from the fact that we enable them to run workloads in areas where they just couldn't think it was possible to do so. So either move things to the cloud and get all the benefits of the cloud, where before there were some workloads they just couldn't move to the cloud. Or we allow them to run workloads much, much closer to where they're needed. So in some cases, we've seen, I'll give you one example of a company we're working with, and they're expanding into China, and they were very worried about the Chinese government getting access to their data. Uh, so they originally, they thought about running the you know, pieces of the workers in China, and China pieces in Singapore, and having all the keys in Singapore and out of China, and just having encrypted data in China. And it just caused a lot of sort of friction in terms of you know, in terms of the, uh, the operational efficiency of things, you, you, you want to run workloads and have the keys as close as you need to the data. Otherwise, you get latency. And being able to just run everything within China in a, in a completely protected, completely secure way allowed them to get those gains. Okay, that makes sense. And for the go-to-market team, how did you start hiring salespeople? What were the first roles that you hired? 
Yeah, so we had a somewhat of a unique story in that sense. So basically, what we've done sort of in the initial phases of the company was one, obviously build the product, but also figure out that product market, you know, fair, what's the distribution channel? I mentioned all the different things that we are happy to kind of go deeper there, but all these sort of different experiments that we've done. Once we kind of figured out, okay, this is going to be our go-to-market motion, and we realized it was going to be a, a direct go-to-market motion, selling into large enterprises where we started, I was sort of lucky to get connected with Mark Cranny. Which I don't know if Mark Cranny. Mark Cranny, yeah, yeah, is a very well-known name, and he got very excited about what we do, and he actually joined us as a very hands-on go-to-market advisor, and he basically helped us grow the team from basically zero to nine sales teams within four months. So we just scaled very, very, very quickly, and not just on the sort of the sales side, the marketing side, the you know partnership and alliance side. So we just sort of grew from like zero to relatively large very quickly, just through sort of what Mark was able to to put in place. And how did that work out? So it's still in motion. It's actually working out pretty great. He's, um, again, I'm sure a lot of people read about him in, you know, in Ben Horowitz's book. What he knows about go-to-market is like, if I live, you know, 10 lifetimes, I don't think I'll, you know, know as much about this as, as he does. And do you remember which of the roles that he first started hiring for? Yeah. So the first two roles that we brought was a VP of sales and CMO. Uh, so these were the two roles. And then I, I can actually maybe take a step back because I've kind of seen this and this was just amazing to watch him kind of build. He basically identifies like, these are the things that we need to do to start scaling this much, much faster. And he started putting them in place basically in the right order in terms of what's sort of the long pole in, in terms of getting things in place. And the first thing he did was essentially build a team. He said, this is going to be the long pole in getting the team sort of hired and, and ramped up. So that, that was the first thing. So we bought a VP of sales and he started hiring people underneath him. So you know, uh, sales reps and SDR team, SEs, we ramped up the team super quickly. And then we worked on the, you know, just a lot of content for them to be able to go and pitch to customers. Obviously, we had the content that we used, but the level of the level of perfection that he's sort of striving towards. is What well, you need as a CEO founder is different to what a, a sales team needs. It doesn't have your experience, passion, things like that. They need to operate at a different level. That's exactly right. And kind of his point was, we need to take all the things that you guys have in your heads and kind of put them into a slide that, uh, you know, the sales team can go use. And we just spent, we basically had a, I think it was like a few months of, you know, two hour meetings a week with me, my co-founder, our VP of engineering, our head of product, and then Mark, our CMO, our VP of sales, just going, you know, building that customer facing deck and all the decks is, it just creates just a bunch of collateral that comes out of this. And that was just an amazing process and kind of watch him, you know, help drive that. Then he helped with packaging and pricing. And obviously we had sort of initial packaging and pricing. We said, no, this is not kind of the level of maturity that we would need, you know, the sales team would go need to go do this. So he helped build that. And then all the sales operations, all the tools, the processes uh, behind the scenes to go basically execute at that level. So just watching him put all that in place has just been phenomenal. When you're in the room working away, you put the deck you're working on, right? There's probably some key components of that. What else came out of that? Was there, I don't know, like uh, discovery frameworks, things like that that he was using? Yeah, exactly. So one, it's just not one deck. It's just a, a multitude of decks, right? There's the customer-facing deck. There's the sort of technical deep dive deck. There's all these sort of competitive decks that come along with it. There's the deck for when you sort of present the sort of the offer to the customer. So there's just a bunch of things that come out of that. But then, yeah, the, all the discovery, quite understanding, you know, how do you identify this, you know, the right customer to go? Is it something that's sort of worth pursuing now or do we want to sort of park it for now? There's just a bunch of things that come out of it. And then also just a lot of other collateral that helps kind of feed the top of the funnel and goes to the marketing team to start nurturing leads that we have. That's awesome. How did you get in touch with uh, Mark Freddy? So we got connected through one of our investors. So Mark, he was the CEO of a, another portfolio company of theirs, and he just uh, left his role there. And they basically told him there's a company we want you to meet. Do you think you guys are going to hit it off? We did. And that's sort of how we got connected. 
Yeah, and again, it's his experience has just been phenomenal. Yeah, he's done this many times, right? So he... Yeah, there's not that many people on, you know, on the planet that have done this multiple times, being able to take companies from you know zero to multi-billion dollar exits in different spaces. This is like, obviously he has sort of his playbook, but his playbook is extremely, extremely flexible and can adjust itself to kind of the different situations of different companies. That's awesome. And when you look at the rest of this year, what's the plan for the sales team in terms of growth, and, you know, channels and distribution? Yeah, so uh, there's sort of two things. One is uh, we're going to obviously continue growing the sales teams. Uh, expecting to end the year was about 18 uh, sales teams. And then and obviously there's the direct motion. And then the other side of it, which is another person that Cranny connected me with, uh, we hired our VP of Alliances. And he's, again, just a phenomenal, phenomenal hire. He's an ex-AWS uh, uh, person. He actually ran uh, Alliances for Cranny two times before us. And there's a lot of additional value that can be added, not just by going direct, but also by going through these partnerships with the cloud vendors and through these partnerships with the ISV vendors. Without the ISV vendors, we have sort of a sell to motion, but also a sales with motion. So he's helping uh, shape that and build that. That's awesome. When you look at you know, RSA, right, there's thousands of vendors in the space. I often wonder, as a company getting going, how you think about how do we rise above this noise? How do we get our unfair share of attention given everything else that's going on over there. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. That's actually one of the big challenges that every security company faces, right? There's just so much noise out there. Everything sounds roughly the same. It's really hard to kind of, you know, to get above the noise. And to some extent for us, it's even uh, harder to some extent because we're not sort of following a trail that somebody else laid for us. There's a bunch of companies that, you know, for better or worse, it's, it's sometimes it's a great strategy, but one company sort of, you know, created a market and then a bunch of companies sort of follow in their footsteps. And it's a much easier sort of sales motion because people know what you're talking about. You don't need to say, I cost less or I'm better that way. But people kind of know the value that they're getting and they have a budget for it or they're, you know, they're coming up with the renewal and they think about whether or not to replace it. This is not the case for us. We're building something completely different that nobody else is doing. We're building a completely new market. But I think the security aspect of this, but I think this is going to completely change the enterprise security market. Again, not necessarily just us, but confidential computing is going to make about 80% of what we see out there obsolete and happy to kind of talk about what, why I think that is. Well, listen, I enjoyed the conversation, Al. I really wish you every success for this year and beyond. Thanks so much. This was a fascinating chat with Al on this interview about an area that I knew a little bit about and learned a lot from him. But the real takeaways for me were around all the go-to-market stuff that we talked about. I thought that Al was very, very thoughtful about how he's going about doing it. And he's done some things that perhaps others have not and it's really paying off for him as he's building the team and the company. So first takeaway was one of the threads throughout the whole episode was the time and the resources they spent working on the foundations to be able to then build the sales team. He talked to the start about understanding problems, personas, how we solve those problems for those personas and a lot of depth around that. And then later on in the episode, he talked about how they'd engage with Mark Craney, who's been around the startup world for many years and got a lot of help from him as an advisor to build out the foundations and the playbooks and all the tools the sales team would need so they could start building out the sales team. And it sounds like they built the sales team pretty rapidly as they realized they were ready for it. So that was one takeaway. And the second takeaway was how they became ready for it. You know, AL said that they literally had hundreds of conversations with people to learn about what people needed and why, and that allowed them to get the product market fit. And you know, as he said, you know, product market fit is a journey, but their sign they were looking for is repeatability. When are we at the point where, as a founding team or a founding team with a little bit of help, they could get to repeatability and then have the confidence 
to then add in those sales teams that he was talking about. So I thought that was uh, really thoughtful and interesting how he did that. And the third one was the idea that distribution is most important. It is, in fact, more important than product, although having a great product is important too. So he said that uh, you know, distribution, thinking about the go-to-market, thinking about selling motions and how you support those selling motions is what's going to allow them to break out and be successful. As he said, and I think as many of us have realized over the years, that having a great product isn't enough. But there's lots of examples with people with okay or good enough type products that have really figured out to go to market and how to sell it have actually been the ones that uh, have turned out to be successful. So those are my three big takeaways from that call. I really did enjoy the conversation with Al, and I wish the Anjuna team and Al success for 2022 and into 2023. It would mean a lot to me and to the continued growth of the show if you'd help get the word out. So how do you do that easily? There are two ways. Firstly, just simply send a link to a friend. Send a link to the show, to this episode. Um, you can email it, text it, Slack it, whatever works for you and is easy for you. The second way is to leave a super quick rating. And sometimes that can seem complicated, so I've made it as easy for you as I can. You simply have to go to ratethispodcast.com slash cyber. That's ratethispodcast.com slash cyber and explains exactly how to do it. Either of these ways will take you less than 30 seconds to do and it will mean the world to me. So thank you.